0: and I am one of the graduate student board members and the host for today's episode. The Writing and Literacy SIG podcast aims to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and engage in conversation with SIG members and the greater writing and literacies field. Through engaging in dialogue, we hope to ignite nationwide discussions amongst faculty and graduate students concerning topics that are timely and pertinent to the scholarship concerning the relationship between writing Literacies and the broader field of education. Today's episode will be centered on the topic of digital literacies and how our panelists see digital literacies, multimodalities, and technology spaces shaping the field of literacy, as well as where digital literacies might be headed in the future. But before we begin our discussion, let's take a few minutes to for introductions. We would love for each of our scholars to introduce themselves let us know their affiliate institutions and their current research focus. So we can begin with Dr. Amy Hutchison.
1: Hi there, Amy Hutchison. I'm the Fayard Family Professor of Literacy at the University of Alabama newly, just moved here (laughs) from George Mason University. And uh, I am currently actually focusing a lot on digital writing, um, learning to compose digital compositions, specifically through um, a platform my team has developed called Compose and Code, which helps students learn to create written compositions and turn them into multimodal compositions through coding. So that's
2: it in a nutshell. <laughs> is Brady Nash and I'm an assistant professor of English language arts at Miami University, the one in Ohio, not in Florida. Um, and my current research focus is on um, digital literacies in secondary English courses, uh, specifically um, digital reading and critical media literacy, thinking about how curriculum that address those topics can be more responsive to students' cultures, students' funds of knowledge, um, and also more responsive to what's going on with um, digital reading and how people are making sense of the world on social media platforms and all of the wild stuff that's happening there.
3: I'm Rabani, I am a fourth year doctoral student at uh, Reading, Writing, Literacy at the University of Pennsylvania, um, the Graduate School of Education. I work with Dr. Amy Stoneyolo. And um, I research youth practices and participation on digital media networks through ethnographic and multimodal methods. And my dissertation project uh, examines literacy practices of youth uh, in youth-led coalitions outside the school in both Delhi, uh, where I'm from, and Philadelphia, where I'm living right now, to um, really look at what collective literacy practices, um, what are the collective literacy practices of youth in these spaces. and um, how these develop over time and in relation to other digital and physical spaces. Um, also looking at how these intersect with global and local network discourses. Uh,
4: good morning everybody or whatever time it is when you're hearing this. Uh, my name is Antero Garcia. I'm an associate professor at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. Um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, speculative approaches to learning and literacy. This has to do with some of the digital literacy background that I tend to um, engage with this work. Uh, so trying to imagine kind of what are the um, the horizons of the work that we're on is um, my, my colleague, Nicole, Mira, who I've been doing a lot of this work with. Um, we've been thinking about this in terms of horizons and the boundaries of where uh, educational and equity driven research might live. Uh, I'm also finishing the, the page proofs for a book the next couple of days um, on the school bus and uh, making an argument that the school bus is the uh, most substantive form of educational technology. And so I've been thinking about that as we've been interested in thinking about what digital tools look like. uh, I would argue that the school bus is probably the biggest form of educational technology that's shaped uh, U.S. education.
0: Nice. We're so excited to have all of you here for this conversation. So, to begin, um, our first question to really kind of guide our conversation is How do you see digital literacies and multimodalities taking shape right now within the literacy field?
1: Um, I think a lot in my work about how one, like writing and using technologies is not binary and should not be thought about that way. We're always using all these mediums simultaneously, collectively. And I think that's a really important piece of what we should be thinking about and teaching students. Actually, if you look behind me right now, I have a 3D printer, (laughs) a post-it note on my wall. I have a marker board, I have books, I have robotic blocks. I use all of these things together. So that's something I think about a lot and how we should be shaping how we think about this. And I think like as digital composers, well, and if I think about how I'm doing this in my adult life, which is, you know, where we ultimately are preparing students to to what we're ultimately preparing them to do, we're always collecting information and having to filter and organize and curate. And I think that's a really also important piece of the writing process that's just as important as just like the actual composing itself. Um. So I do think that's a critical piece of things. I also think that kind of maybe five or 10 years ago, there was the shift to this idea that students should not just be consumers of information, but creators of information. And I would say, like, I think the current shift is that not just creators of information with existing applications, but they should actually be creators of the applications themselves that they can use to create things. And they can learn to do that by learning programming. So that's why I focus on programming as a form of writing and sort of within that, something I hope all students take away is developing, I sort of focus on these three key pieces of like the critical, functional and rhetorical literacies that are needed for that medium, but also like how those, you use those same literacies across mediums.
3: I, um, to add to what you were saying and thinking of students uh, as creators of media, in my work with youth in India, something that I've been noticing, which, again, I'm not the first one to notice it. We've seen that across. Um, that a lot of young people's literacy practices, whether it's in media making, uh, creating things, um, increasingly intersect with uh, these larger global um, discourses that exist uh, around. I, an example of this was, uh, I have a student who um, who's now a senior, who's now a junior at, at college. He um, during the Black Lives Matter movement in Delhi, he created these beautiful, very powerful collages, and um, and he was this person sitting in Delhi, uh, but in- engaging with content things that were happening in a, in a in a very different context. So I've been thinking a lot about how young people's media practices really sit within these larger discourses. Um, and I'm thinking about a way to bring that in, or for me, I guess, as a doctoral student to study it. So that's something that I'm very fascinated with.
2: I've been thinking a lot about, maybe worrying a lot about the sort of sociopolitical realm that we are in um, right now, and thinking about the implications of that for literacy curriculum in schools and what it means to teach for justice and for democracy um, And the kinds of things that I think that we all in this space right now, or at least on this Zoom believe in, um, in a world that's becoming increasingly unfriendly to those ideas. Um, And yeah, just thinking about like what do, um, what is the role of digital literacies in these spaces? There's a a little uh, interchange between two teachers I was working with last year where one says, I wonder what in, you know, 50 years or so, when people look back at our time and say, in, in those early days of the internet, like, what were they using these technologies for? And the other teacher says um, they were using them to destroy the free world. And I think um, while we might have debates about like how free the world was in the past, I think there's definitely some currents, um, some sort of like rising right wing and fascist movements around the world and thinking about what do digital literacies look like um, in in this new space where I think there's going to be a lot of shifts in in how power is distributed in ways that we might not like.
1: Actually, is where some of the critical and rhetorical literacies that I focus on and programming come in. Like, if you can learn to be a creator of those things, you can be more effective at shaping the conversation because you can create the very tools that are used um, to uplift and oppress. (laughs) So uh, that's a lot of where I take my work as well.
4: Amy, I appreciate that. That, that reminder that you just said, great that that, that these tools are both that, you know, uh, a hammers a hammer, right? It can both they can both uplift and depress to, to use your words, right. And I think this is where I think thinking about the the bummer language, Brady that, that you brought up. Um, and Amy, I think the possibilities of the tools that we're thinking about, this is this is I think where I think like in the heart of, of, of those two comments is kind of where I've been sitting feeling, yeah, pretty pessimistic, I think about the state of the world and the state of what our research can do, right? Um, So my work with English ed teachers has been kind of thinking about how the ways we teach English in the US, um, English language arts uh, tends to uh, might have been complicit in some of the rise of right wing fascist practice, autocratic practices happening in this country right now. So for example, something, um, some of the things that we take for granted I'll make it <clears throat> I'll make a digital connection in a second. But some of the things we take for granted, like the ways that argumentation and debate are centered uh, in k twelve writing practices, um might reflect the kind of sparring and argumentative ways that we, you know, we kind of hold territory and fight kind of in this like political colonial approach rather than thinking about what uh, discourse and empathy and unwritten dialogue might look like. Um, and so I think what I want to say about this is, as we think about the ways that we might be complicit as researchers, as educators, as people who are preparing teachers, I've been trying to think about what are the ways we might reimagine what our relationships with digital tools would be. And so, one thing I would remind uh, maybe folks listening to us—I don't—I don't, I don't want to remind us. This sounds very mansplaining—is um, when I think when I think about digital literacies, I think about digits and I think about like our fingers, right? And reminder that the digital uh, can be the things that we hold with our hands, right? That as we're as we're talking, I've been writing on a notebook. Um, and it's no one can read it even myself right like I'm not not sure what that physical act is doing for anybody Um, but the digital is always a a simulation of the analog right it's always tied to what's happening in this world around us we we tend to talk as a field um, as if the digital is this other space right Uh, and you're going somewhere else but every time you go quote unquote on the internet or you go onto a social media site you're doing that in a physical space I'm sitting in a cluttered office where if there's an earthquake i'm I'm dead for sure like this is this is not a safe environment uh and so i can think about you know the ways that this physical space shapes me the ways that there's like a, a cup of coffee next to me the ways i'm worried that my dog is going to bark and ruin this recording right the analog space is always a part of us and uh to your point brady like that is also the socio-political nature of the analog space shaping the digital environments too
2: kind of thinking of a connection between what you all are saying too um, there's a circular relationship where like the, the technological environments that are designed, like Amy, as you said, designed by, you know, our future students in the future, or I mean, our current students in the future will be designing these, and those shape, like, what's, what kind of political discourse we can have, and then the sort of socio-political discourse shapes what kinds of technologies develop. And so I think there's this really interesting um relationship, kind of thinking, like, what Rabani was saying, too, about, like, in these global spaces, there's, like, a lot going on. Um, That I think in our sort of argumentation-oriented essay text uh, ways of doing things and in language arts we may have we may have missed or worsened. So
3: um, I think this is this is so helpful for me to even sort of think through with you because a lot of what you're speaking is what I'm looking at in my research, Um, Dr. Garcia. You just brought up this this uh, and I've read that paper. I've taught it in my digital literacy class uh, about the sort of the analog being a part of our digital spaces. That's something that um, I've been really thinking about. Um, I guess I'm in the field and I see it a lot more of like how I work in informal spaces. My most of my work has always been in museums or with art based pedagogies, but increasingly how the space within which that those artifacts are being produced or the ways in which the young people I work with work with digital spaces. the space itself informs so much of what they're doing, uh, whether it's creating like a TikTok video or a hip hop song um, or a dance video. But um, so, so I think that's something that I would love to talk more about sort of the ways in which we can engage in this scholarship because most of the scholarship on digital literacy takes you away from it, like takes you away from the space. Um, and of course, we're talking a lot about platforms and tools and applications, but circling right back to um, maybe even informal spaces. Though I kind of hate to make the distinction.
4: Hey, Rabana, you're, you're making me think about um, yeah, the, the fraught nature of the word informal, right? That in some space, every every space is a learning space, whether or not we use formal or informal, right? That it's a it's a weird distinction that is uh, a state sanctioned distinction. In some sense, right, like that is um, an abdication of responsibilities in, in one space or another. Um, and, yeah, maybe the kinds of learning that happen based on a space, right, so um, like, Amy, I'm looking at your 3D printer and the post-it notes behind it, right, and if that 3D printer, um, like if you unplugged it and moved it to um, like the, the student center right on campus, right, it, w- it would function in a different way than if you moved it to um, the zoo, right? I don't know what it happened at the zoo, right? Maybe it just become smelly, right? Uh, but you can just think about it. the context, like really shapes. I think to your point, Robani, like the the kind of work that that happens with with our digital tools.
1: It just moved from my house to my office. <laughs> At my house with my eight-year-old daughter, it was used to print a teddy bear. <laughs> and it was... Wiser. Was it cuddly?
4: Can, can, you, can you make a soft t- teddy bear with the 3D and, printer?
1: Nope, it's a very hard, <laughs> bear-shaped object is maybe the better way to say it. <laughs> that then became a necklace because that was the direction she wanted to take it. And of course, the last time it was used here was for very different purposes. So I could not agree more on that.
4: You know, the literacy field could probably do well with more hard, bear-shaped objects, I think. That (laughs) that seems like the real takeaway here.
1: You're actually making me think about, this is taking the conversation in a different direction, but like how differently different students think about, interact with, and show interest and engagement with different technologies. This has really bothered me for a long time, I think. There's this assumption that if you're under a certain age that you love technology and live and die by it and want to use it for all things. And I know we've talked about this a lot in the field, but Like I feel like I'm living and breathing it right now. I have three school-aged children. I have an eight-year-old who's just incredibly creative and smart and has zero interest in any technologies unless they can print her a bear (laughs) and um, I think for a long time there's been this sort of emphasis on especially with girls like we have to get girls more engaged in STEM like activities and especially like enjoying technologies and you know developing literacies around technologies. And I certainly do agree that there's reason to expose them to those things and like provide those opportunities and certainly teach them the functional, critical, and rhetorical literacies around them. But I also don't think like we should continue to make the assumption that everyone loves working with technology, that um, this is the best way to do things and teach things. It's just not that black and white. And so I think that's important by contrast, my 11-year-old daughter, like, obsessively builds and programs Legos right and they're just two totally different kids who've grown up in exactly the same environment who just are very different people because people are different and so I think that's like also an interesting thing to think about Um, not all of our students are going to be interested in learning um, like in the socio-political context of things right like I'm just using that as an example because it's come up in this conversation they're they're all going to have different interests and I do think that like we have to really consider that um, in everything we create and study.
3: Just just to add to what you're saying, it really um, something that stood out to me while you were speaking was also the different ways in which we imagine or think that students are participating uh, in digital spaces or on digital technology, Um, sort of, they do make, they often make choices and I'm looking at like maybe social media-like spaces where um, sometimes they are silent or or silence for various reasons. They don't want to show up in digital spaces or um, or they make themselves invisible, but they are on these spaces. Um, and I guess we associate a sort of doing-ness with being in digital. So we are constantly thinking of like this, the, these are these are the, the ways to engage in digital spaces has a certain doingness associated with it. Whereas I also think that just being in with, a lot of students participate in these spaces in, in ways that we don't imagine.
1: Yeah, I think just like making assumptions about anything or generalizations, like I think both of those things, assuming and generalizing just because a lot of youth use social media, not all youth use social media or have an interest in it. And so I think those are just like two key ideas, not making assumptions and not generalizing.
0: Silence, um, some of the work I've been doing around uh, TikTok and um, reading components and book talk. One of the things that came up that was really intriguing to me was a notion around um, the anonymous factor of be- being able to be in a space Um, and experience it and experience the community components of these digital spaces, but then not have to have friends and family really know about those identities that they were exploring and how being able to have that uh, interaction and still, I guess, hide was really Mm -hmm. a powerful space for them to kind of have um, agency and autonomy that they didn't really feel that they had in spaces like school, or spaces at home, or even spaces that are more public facing um, within uh, social media spaces. So that's really making me think about that, Rabani, And also like the redefinition, sorry, redefining uh, components of literacy practices because of these spaces and how like, what it means to write, I'm thinking about your work, Dr. Hutchison, about what it means to write looks really different. Uh, when you're getting access to be able to use a 3D printer right and composition looks really different than maybe what we're seeing in more traditional spaces as well or even just what it means to read as well is redefined right because of the um sometimes the location of where we're engaging with that you're
4: making me think of and I'm I'm going to pose a random theory and I'm, I'm I'm hoping that this this falls apart so please push on it um the when my first my first faculty position was at Colorado State in Fort Collins, and, and is there's only I only, and I only have good things to say about that position. But one of the weird things for me was moving from Los Angeles to Fort Collins um, was the small town nature of if I were to go out to dinner it's very likely I was going to run into a student. Mm-hmm. and I'd be wearing, you know, like an obnoxious band T-shirt or something, and like not not in like professor clothes. Right. And so um, and I didn't feel that comfortable in the and it's not rural. Right. But I'll, I'll describe this as rural compared to Los Angeles. Um, and part of what I love is, you know, tonight I will go to an obnoxious band concert, right, after my kids go to bed um in Los Angeles. And I will um I will I, I'm quite confident I will not see anybody I know there. And that that is wonderful to me as as a as a natural introvert. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder if this idea idea of anonymity anonymity and I think about kind of networked privacy in the way that Dana Boyd's talked about it. Um, if there's a way that we might construct this idea of digital spaces as like a rural digital and a rural and a and a uh, urban digital in some sense and what I mean by that isn't in the kind of ways those words get taken up as class distinctions but in terms of if I go onto a social network like Be Real it's very rural in that I will only see people I closely know based on the way that social network is constructed and I can also go and lurk on TikTok um, and kind of fall into the urban space of not running into other people in those spaces and so this is just just a thing I've been reflecting on the ways that we can kind of move across different kinds of spaces and be known or choose to not be known if we wanted to, or be known in different ways too.
0: That makes me think about the ways that sometimes spaces is navigated and negotiated and the choices that um, individuals might make within those spaces, I think really speaks to um, not really assuming what we, we think a space really is and why people are using it to Rabani's point of you know, why we might choose one particular social media space or one digital space or one digital action over another. So I love that kind of contrast of like the rural and urban within the digital kind of spaces, because I think that uh, Dr. Garcia, that that is true. Like we're using it for different purposes of who we get to see. And then also, who do we get to express and be ourselves based on the kind of publicity of like where we are and how we're seen?
1: Because I primarily, well, often I'm working with elementary age students, I would say these are parts of, um, these are literacy skills that we should be teaching to our students very explicitly to help them understand the affordances and constraints of each of these spaces, like what they can be used for, what, uh, like the degree of privacy they have, how their data is being used. I think is like actually a really important A thing that we have to explicitly teach students now that like we didn't have to think about you know so many years ago and I just think about the ethics of using various spaces um, where your work shows up not just being a critical consumer of other people's work but actually being critical of your own work and the messages that you're conveying if you're putting work out into a digital space your voice out into a digital space or participating it how are other people viewing it? Like, are you excluding other people in that space by the way you're talking about things? Even if uh, you might in no way imagine that you're doing that, who are you excluding? And so just being even more critical of your own voice in addition to being critical of the information you consume. And I think that's the shift that happens because we can be such um, ubiquitous creators now or participators. Uh,
2: however you want to think about it. Um, coming back to this idea of like anonymity in online spaces, um, I've been doing some work lately with Grace Kim at in Austin, and I just moved from Austin to a, a small town and ex- I'm experiencing much of what you were describing in Tarot. There's, I think, 7,000, the population here of non-students is 7,000 people and like a 21,000 student population. So it's uh, much the same experience. Um, but thinking about how like, I feel like in some online spaces, like the the draw is the anonymity that you have. Um, like you're there because like you can have conversations anonymously that you might not want to have, or look up information that you might not want to in a, in a clearer way. And then in, in other spaces, there's you want to be seen and recognized, and there's aspects of your your identity or your beliefs or whatever that you you don't in in the space that's right around you have a connection to. And so like being seen is very important in those in those online communities. Uh, And I think one thing that's interesting is is we, I think we all tend to think of ourselves like our our culture teaches us to think of ourselves as like very agentive and having a lot of control over, over who we are and the choices we make. But I think um, kind of thinking about Amy, what you were saying, like, as we're participating in these spaces, like looking at ourselves too, and like, how, how is my participation in this and the different contextual factors in each space kind of maybe slowly, bit by bit, like day by day, minute by minute, like shaping who I am and who I'm becoming, or or shaping the way that my beliefs are developing in ways that I'm not necessarily, or that none of us are necessarily choosing, but that are impacting us regardless. And I think that's a really hard, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, but it's just, it seems like a really hard thing to wrap my head around or a hard conversation to have, um, because it is such a shift from the way we think about like identity and, and agency and choice and autonomy. In our culture.
3: I'm going to sort of throw something in this that um, Dr. Garcia what you and Dr. Nash you just shared. Um, So in my experience of working with youth uh, and not all of them sort of my subset of people that are young people that i have been working with um, they've often claimed that they're not active social media users. Um, Though some of their conversations and um their writings seem deeply informed by what, by the networks that they're part of. So just thinking of anonymity, um, I think some of them are afraid of even putting themselves out, maybe afraid is the wrong word or um, they're, they're in these spaces, they they're choosing to be anonymous not because that is something that they feel like they need to be in that space, but mostly because of where they come from, because of their social, cultural, religious backgrounds, economic backgrounds, where they've often said that um, they're stalkers, we're stalkers, and we're not, uh, we're not really on it, um, and some of that comes from sort of not having access to other things that maybe their peers have or people in their school, so they choose to have these anonymous profiles uh, and then see themselves as non-users where they are users, they are actively engaged in these spaces, um, just not in the ways in which we understand. Um, So I think just this, this framework of anonymity is so fascinating that it can be both, I mean, it is still agentive. choosing to be anonymous for whatever reasons is still agentive
1: access makes me think, so just this morning, I was having a convert, while well, trying to have a conversation with a potential doctoral student who's interested in the research that I do, wants to become a doctoral student, she's currently in Iran, and we started out trying to have a Zoom conversation, which we scheduled a few days ago, and she's like, actually, now Zoom has been shut down in our country, can we talk via Google Meet? So we made a plan to contact, <laughs> to contact each other via Google Meet, And then just last night she emails again. She said, that's now shut down. We don't have access to that. Can we contact each other via Skype? And so we were able to successfully connect via Skype, but like with a very poor connection. And I just think about um, like some of the things that we worry about in the U.S., in terms of equity and access to our for our students which are incredibly important but i think like we have such a uh, filtered lens to view things and like this person literally had to fight for access to just have a video technology that she could use to connect about something that's like very important for her future um And I was in a school the other day where the students all had one-to-one iPads and laptops as part of like their daily repertoire of things. And so I think there's just a lot to unpack there and think about as we think about um, what are the real issues surrounding technologies as they relate to agency and
0: ability to, um, I guess, just connect with the world. So... I think Dr. Hutchison, you kind of were a perfect bridge to um, my question that I was gonna ask the group and how do you see some of the digital composition um, and also digital interpretation and multimodic, multimodal um, semiotic interpretation really shaping teacher education, right? And what's happening as we're thinking about uh, preparing uh, future teachers to go into the classroom to do and engage in some of this work.
1: I think I learned, like, through COVID, <laughs> having school-age children at home for an entire year, doing schooling, um, that we are, as a whole, teacher educators have not done a good job in preparing teachers for this. Or maybe that's not accurate to say. Maybe there's other systems at work. Maybe it has to do with, you know, schooling and um the nature of schools, but I uh, feel like we have a really long way to go in terms of helping teachers think about digital composition, just even seeing multimodal composition as even a viable option Um, and thinking about uh, like the critical ways that we think about technologies.
2: I'm drawing on something Amy you were saying. I think for both K through 12 teachers and university educators and teacher educators, I think I I have I'm of two minds because on the one hand I always want to think like we can we can all do better and we can all improve in, in our curriculum and pedagogy, and on the other hand I think we're all trying to do work in systems like when when we're trying to do good work we're working in systems that are not necessarily set up for us to be able to do the kind of things that we want to do. Um, but on a more on a smaller and and more optimistic note, I've been doing a lot of work with in-service teachers lately. But and just starting to get into some of this with pre-service teachers is just creating kind of inquiry spaces to for them to look at digital literacies in the world and and draw upon the things that they're seeing and sort of starting with those inquiries and then and building from there has been um, on a, on a much smaller scale something that I've found um, kind of cool and helpful and I've been learning a lot from them um, coming back to like something where bonnie was saying about access to digital technologies just the other day some of my students were talking about interactive fiction and they were um they pulled up this app and it's an interactive fiction app where you make choices about how the story is going to progress but um if you want like the best choices for the story you have to pay like an extra two bucks um, and then or you can pay like a you know, a longer subscription, and then you can like continually get access to the best choices, um, right? Which is something um, I hadn't really particularly thought about. Is like how how is storytelling, um, you know, being infused with microtransactions or being monetized? Um, so I, I think there's all kinds of cool things that can come up from that. But on a systemic level, I'm a little more pessimistic.
1: Yeah, I think that speaks to the nature of like. The public schooling system in the U.S. is just a very, um, it's very restrictive is my best word for it. My children actually, so I have a daughter with autism, so she goes to a private school here and the sort of big sign that you see when you walk into the school office, the school doesn't have to look the way you remember and it's the most refreshing thing (laughs) for me because it doesn't at all for her um like if I shared what her school day is like she has very high functioning autism and she's able to work on grade level but like not in any normal school based school typical school way um and that they're able to make that work right and they're able to make it work in this setting so why can't we make that work in other settings so that school um students instead of students fitting schools. I think uh, like that gives me hope that it's possible, but it's certainly not the system that we work within. So I do have to think, I think I have to think a lot. How do we work within the system that we have while also advocating to change it? And so one way I do that to bring this back around to the digital is like the work that I do. I think um, helping Students think about literacies in these new ways, and how like the purposes for which they use literacy, um, in some way like shapes their thinking as a future generation of users. So maybe someday school is not this restrictive place where students have to fit the school.
4: I guess, I, yes, to all of that. I think this is this is more of just an, an add on than than anything. Um, you know, so much of I think my frustration with um the ways uh, multimodal uh, interpretation and digital composition are being taken up in teacher education and in schools generally um, is that they end up just kind of like falling into uh, the way school has traditionally always worked, right? And I would say this is for the past, you know, several generations of of teachers at this point, right? That it kind of reflects kind of Larry Cuban's idea that uh, the the inflexibility of, of traditional schooling structure, that technology just kind of adheres and falls into place with it, um, that, that seems to me that, you know, we have these incredibly transformative tools. And um generally for the most part, except for kind of weird one-off cases, they we end up just doing more of what school usually looks like. I don't and again, this is going pessimistic, we don't tend to do something radically transformative. And in fact, I think the responses and the kind of media literacy responses to um new forms of interaction in online spaces is to move to reactionary concerns around safety and privacy um uh, and mainly make sure that students know how to uh you know not uh not be harassed not be bullied uh, not put explicit content on the internet and those are important but that's usually kind of where the line stops with most media literacy curriculum is um is around either factuality or around safety right so it's safety and civility rather than around kind of innovation and transformation and so i think that's been kind of attention for me is the kind of what are we doing with these tools to some extent. Um, And it it doesn't have to be that way, but it doesn't have to be that way if we assume that we don't have to adhere to traditional state-sanctioned approaches to what schooling looks like.
2: A thought that kind of bubbled up as you were talking, something I've been concerned about lately too, is the ways that we're taking the way schools have always done things like sort of in relation to like oppressive punishment, Um, behavior systems and then shaping that, like using technologies to shape those in ways that make them even worse um, through things like Class Dojo and um, what's that like quiz app, um, but just sort (laughs) of like instituting like very behaviorist kind of technologies um, and then doing school in ways where a question that we're implicitly starting with is like what is supported and allowed by this platform Or by this technology and then making curricular or pedagogical or um behavioral decisions based on um, based on the technologies that are created by people who have nothing to do with our kids
1: i guess i'd ask what do you see as the antidote for that like what could teachers do instead maybe you don't have that answer (laughs) maybe that's not a fair question i'm just curious if you have thoughts about it
2: yeah well, I think with all this stuff, i like I don't think I have um definitely don't think I have the answer. Uh, but um I mean, I, I think coming back to like questions of teacher agency, like if a school is implementing like you know a certain app or platform, I, I think that makes it more challenging for teachers. But I think just on the on the simplest and most basic level is being like cognizant of like the way that the, that the technologies that we're bringing into classrooms aren't necessarily neutral, that they have their own rhetoric so their own like paths that they guide us towards and then like thinking about like is this, is this what we want to be doing in our classroom or are we doing this because like that's the way the point structure is set up within the platform and I think we've had this like these same issues have been around before with, with like learning management systems and grading systems where like you know there's certain things that are possible within you know the electronic gradebook that are you know that are biased towards like certain ways of doing things and um you know if you're like a eighth grade teacher like you're I think somewhat limited in like your agency by whatever the social context of your school is but I I think at the very least like doing doing some thinking around that or you know us working in university contexts preparing teachers like doing some teaching around that um I think is a maybe not an answer but a first step
1: Yeah, it strikes me that the examples you gave are like students consuming technology. Those are ways that they're consumers, not in any way creators or producers of um, any products or services with technologies. And so I think like just those particular examples really demonstrate kind of like how this conversation started about some of the shifts that we need to make to help students directly create the technologies or at least, you know, program um, what they would like to see, instead of just deciding and just instead of just being forced to have to use what exists um, and so. I don't know how that connects back to Sarah's original question, but I just think
0: like it sort of did bring it full circle to where I started. Out, um, because our time is almost off is I would love to hear a little bit about um, some of the joys of what the best things that you're experiencing right now within digital literacies or digital spaces. Um, Because I know that there's a lot of heaviness sometimes when we think about some of the affordances and gatekeeping that takes place within some of these spaces and schooling. Um, But I think that there also are ways of opportunities. I was hearing uh, Dr. Hutchison kind of talk about some of the ways that um, we can kind of reframe or rethink. Um, So personally for me, one of the best things that I'm experiencing right now in digital spaces and digital literacies is Heidi Klum's warm costume uh, for Halloween. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I'm just going to tell you, if you haven't, your life has been changed then because it is something that's really giving me, um, really renewed life. So I'd love to hear some of the things that are just kind of bringing you that best thing that you're experiencing.
1: This is not like anything for me personally, it is in my research life, but So most of my work, I do focus on inclusive instruction where like how do even students with disabilities participate in this? Cause I do think actually students with disabilities are the group of students that are left out of sort of the digital movement more than anyone. Like they are most often asked to sit and consume and do like computer-based tutoring more than anything if they're ever allowed to touch a digital device. So I do that work and a big win in my work has been Um, Working with teachers who have a lot of students with disabilities in their classrooms and their actual shock, I mean shock, that their students are able to learn to program and create things like that they just had no idea they could possibly do, but they were willing to try and they did and they are in awe that their students can do this. And so that's been a win to just work with so many teachers who sort of have had this like revelation in their thinking. So something positive I've seen recently. Um,
3: I think one of the coolest things that I've started really thinking about and also seeing is just seeing the young people that I work with as sort of um as knowledge producers and also the ways that they position themselves as knowers of their context. And it's fascinating to watch it and it's full of joy. It's super playful. Um, They create all of these little spaces for themselves online um, and they're constantly teaching. So there's, they're, they're saying, we already know what we're doing. And I love thinking of them as agenting, not because I did something or the digital media did something, but that just that, they're using those spaces that are available and they would do it even if the digital space wasn't.
4: I've, I've got a, a few different options. I'm trying to decide like what the thing is that's giving me life in, in terms of the worm or not the worm. I guess I'll say the kind of bittersweet space like headspace I've been in and that is at the time that we're recording this uh, there's something of an exodus from Twitter uh, for for good kind of reasons right. I think you know as, as Elon Musk has taken over and I think during this conversation that my phone said that he's fired the ethical AI team for Twitter, which seems like seems bad. I, I haven't read the details of that article, but that headline sounds bad. Um, you know, I think. Oh, so there's two things. So one is uh, it's it's kind of uh, disheartening to think about abandoning that space because yes, like it's it, it, is, it is whatever it is. Um, and, and also all platforms are probably terrible to some extent, but I've spent a lot of time in communities there and gotten to know people in ways that I won't get to know them again and won't interact with them in a different space if, and when I leave Twitter and, you know, uh, that's kind of a bummer, right? Like when we leave a community as awful as big, big T Twitter can be, right? Like the small community of, of, friends and colleagues I've come to know over the years and people that I've only, uh, met on Twitter and then we'll see each other for the first time at a conference has been kind of a transformative space that, um, I don't think other social networks are going to replace right away. So there's that. The other thing I'll just say is I've been playing with um, Dolly 2, the kind of AI image-based thing. The AI we type in a prompt, and it creates a a picture for you. And it's terrifying, and it's frightening. And I've been thinking about it. Um, But kind of my favorite thing is I have um, have three-year-old twins. uh, And uh, the the ability of that tool to just create any image they want is is joyful for them. So um, my daughter will sit on my lap and say, I want a picture of an anteater. Eating a taco at the beach. And I can type the <laughs> anteater eating a taco at the beach, and it'll just create four images of anteaters eating tacos at the beach. And then usually it usually just kind of stays with the anteater eating something. So, you no, know, I want anteater eating a cupcake at another place, right? So, lots of anteater pictures from Dolly. So, I get maybe that's a useful form of uh, composition that's happening.
2: So, I'll share two things that I think have been really joyful for me over the last couple of years. Um, one is just the, the middle school English teachers who I've been working with and the the extent their their like hunger and their excitement and the amazing things that they're doing um, when given even just a little bit of agency and space to do amazing things and sort of subsequently their students, um, you know, when they're creating ones in which like students have a chance to talk about you know the like <clears throat> emotional manipulation on Twitter or uh, clickbait and things like how how thoughtful the students are about these things and and just how lively those classrooms are is really exciting and feeling like in the midst of a lot of pessimism, um, just seeing people come to life with like excitement and criticality around these topics has been really great. And then on a more personal level, um, I feel like whenever I'm too bummed out about this, I'll go back and play the, it's like, I think it was a Sony video game from about 10 years ago called Journey that is just really, alive and wonderful and it's very short like so easy to get into and um i think it reminds me of like some of the beautiful possibilities that can come from like digital art and um that's funny and terrible uh that can come from uh you know like our experiences with um technologies on on more aesthetic levels that i think um i and, and maybe a lot of us focus less on um given all of the terrible things happening in the world today that like there still are beautiful possibilities like through and outside of um, technologies that we should I think we would be amiss if we were to forget those.
1: I'll quickly share one playful thing that has been going on at my house because it's pretty it was pretty funny and kind of fun for me. My children like really passionately wanted to deliver Halloween candy at our house through a robot and they like independently brainstormed all the possible ways that they could do this and like the things they could build and so um i ended up having to like help them out because the things they were trying to build were not successful but like i really appreciated their process and let them go at it for a while so we ended up finding a robotic arm kit and they built a robotic arm. I mean, mind you, this is like an eight-year-old doing this and like persevered in the written instructions for like insane numbers of hours to build this robotic arm um, because they were so motivated to want to drop candy into a bucket with it and ended up like my eight-year-old decided she wanted to document the process and took pictures and made her own slideshow. And like, I directed none of this. This was like their independent choice to (laughs) um to document and do all of these things but I just like marveled at the literacy that was taking place and all of this and the joy and like how independently they did this and just the thrill that they had on Halloween night like using the robotic arm to give people candy and so um I think like that's aspirational for what we can do with technologies.
4: That is so cool. I just want to say that the audio recording won't, oh my dogs are working, but it doesn't, it doesn't capture the kind of joy that, that I saw people's faces react to to how cool that project is and you don't, you don't capture the audio. It just sounds like you're saying this and everyone's just flat, but I think that's really cool. Um,
0: On that note, thank you all so much for your time. This has been such a wonderful discussion, I think. It has gone in so many different directions but I think it has really touched on some of the future components of where digital literacies um, will be going in the future for the field.